0: Coming now to our gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 21 through 28, this is actually part of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is covering all kinds of topics and showing especially how, what people have heard, what they have interpreted, they've understood, about uh, the law and the past has been misunderstood and that goes much farther than they ever anticipated. This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 21, before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for your word that you have given to us. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that are that are ready, hearts that are ready to um, to be challenged to be convicted to be changed, or that we would be made evermore by your word and your spirit into the people that you've created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus in His name we pray amen. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Turning then to James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It's on page 1880 in your pew Bibles. James writes, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you um, are here this morning and you like political sex scandals, you have come on the right Sunday. If, if on the other hand, you like political sex scandals because uh, you have been trained by our media to watch them and pay attention to them uh, just in the same way any good Pharisee would, uh, then I'm really glad you're here today because we're going to learn a different way to view this kind of thing. Uh, And the way that I think we ought to view it is an experience I think maybe we've all shared, which is, if you've ever been watching a movie and you've been tempted, or maybe you actually have done this, to shout at the screen, or at least mutter under your breath when you're watching the movie, and the person that you are rooting for, the person who is the hero of the whole thing, and you see that they are about to do something... And as the audience, you're like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't go that way. Don't make that decision. Don't open that door. Don't, whatever it is, don't say that to her. Whatever it is, and you see it coming before it happens, and you want to shout out and say, no, don't. I think that is how we want to view um, these kinds of scandals. That's actually, I think, what's going on in our passage this morning and how we ought to look at that. What we are looking at is the sex scandal of King David. And this, this is the same David, though, who we've been rooting for. We've been seeing what's been going on in his life for years. We've been looking at it for a few weeks, but this is what's been going on in his life for years. We see that this is the David that uh, God anointed through the prophet Samuel. when David was still a shepherd and said, you are going to be the next king. Why? Because you look the most like the king? No, because your heart is right. And then we see that play out in episode after episode after episode. And so we see that uh, David is the one who actually defeats Goliath. Because he's the biggest and the strongest? No, because his heart is right. And we see that he's actually saying, the battle isn't mine. The battle isn't a battle of weapons. The battle is the Lord's. David's heart is set on God, his attention is set on God, and who he is and what he's doing. And he says, look, if God is the one who's fighting this, we have nothing to fear. I'm going forward. And so, uh, and so we see him following God in that way. Uh, later on we see with King Saul, who then gets jealous and starts chasing David. And we find David hiding in a cave and has an opportunity to kill Saul. And all his friends are saying this is it. Go do it. Kill him. He's trying to kill you. It's even. Plus, this will be a way to make you king. And David says, no. Why? Because his heart is right. He's got his heart on who God is and what he's doing. And he says, God is the one who's anointed me king. God is the one who's going to make me king. And there are things he's given me to do and there are things he's not given me to do. This he's not given me to do. So I'm not doing it. I trust him. We see this play out again and again, once David actually becomes king, and we see how God has fulfilled his promise, and he, we see God making these amazing promises to David, to David for a, an eternal kingdom from his line. This is an amazing thing. But we see with David, when he becomes king, that everybody else around would go and search out the descendants of the previous regime so they could wipe them out, so there'd be no contest as to who the rightful king is. And we see David becomes king, and he searches out the descendants of the previous king, King Saul, not to wipe them out. He finds this guy named Mephibosheth, and he doesn't seek him out to wipe him out. He seeks him out to show him grace and to uh, be good to him and bless him above and beyond his wildest dreams. He gives him the land of his uh, grandfather Saul, welcomes him into David's own family. And so, why is he doing this? Because he's not doing things with David at the center of the story. God is the center of his story. And he gets that, and he understands that. And he has been having his eyes on God, he's had his heart set on God, and that's what he's been after through all of this. That's why all of this has made sense. And so, we have seen from the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, all the way to David, every single person turning away from God. Every single person saying, I'm going to be the one who decides what's right and wrong. Every single person ruining their lives over and over and over again. And then finally we get to David. And we see the one that God has anointed. The word anointed uh, in the Hebrew is the word Messiah. That means the anointed one. And so here we have This idea of this Messiah, and we see the one who's actually got his heart and his attention set on God, and we see him doing in story after story after story, even when everybody else would have done something else, we see David getting it right, and we're thinking, finally, it is about time that somebody would get it right. After all these years, somebody would get it right. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. This is the first part Whereas you're watching this movie, <laughs> you start wanting to scream at the, at the screen. No, David, don't do this. Don't stay in Jerusalem. Don't send everybody else out to go fight while you stay in Jerusalem. If you're not thinking that, here's why you should. This was the same thing that Saul did when Goliath was the enemy. Do you remember this? Saul was the king. And one of the things that the kings were supposed to do was to go out and lead their armies in battle. And so Saul was the biggest and the tallest. And here comes Goliath, the biggest and the tallest from the other side. And so everybody looks to Saul and says, All right, here you go. And Saul says... Anybody else? Anybody, anybody want to go out and fight him? I will give you all kinds of good things if you will do this instead of me. And so we see him not doing what he's in that position to do. And now we see David doing the same thing. So This is the first hint that things are not going well. David sends out everybody else to fight in battle, and he stays home. And then, of course, uh, when you are not where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? things have a way of <laughs> getting even farther off. So, Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. The whole time I was reading that, you should have been screaming at the screen there again. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me, Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't, you come, why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Okay, just pause for a second. There's a lot still left, but we'll get to it. What has happened here, David is revealing his heart through this whole account. God is no longer at the center of the story. David is at the center of the story. And so when he, as the king, is seeing this woman bathing, he says, I think I know what I'll do here. And so he does. And here we have, again, the same thing that was going on in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to decide for myself what is right and wrong. I'm going to be the one to make that call. And I'm going to decide based on how I think that's going to affect me. And I don't care what God has said about it. And so he does. And then, when it turns out, looks like you're not going to get away with it after all, Instead of repenting, he says, I bet I still can. And so, whoa, that was a close one. (laughs) And so, David uh, brings Uriah home to try to have a cover-up. If Uriah goes home with his wife, and then later on has a baby, who's to say who the father is? But what David was not counting on, maybe because he's never encountered it before, is somebody more righteous than he is. Of someone who's doing right when David's doing wrong. He's always been in the other position before. But here we have Uriah, who's actually doing what is right. And saying, everybody else is out there fighting. How in the world could I go home like that when they are experiencing this? which should have been a direct shot at the heart of David because that is exactly what David is doing. All of the men that he has sent out are fighting and dying. And he is up to, well, see what he's up to. So when Uriah tells him, I'm not going to do this, at this point, it's another opportunity for David to repent. But he doesn't. Verse 12. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Here we see that a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober David. This is really spiraling downhill fast. So in the morning, David's, again, not repenting. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, son of the men, in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king the account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, oh, Moreover, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This started what seems like pretty small. It starts, everybody else is going to war, I think I'm going to sit this one out. That seems small. And by the end of the chapter, not only has uh, has David committed adultery, but now he's committed murder, and not only has Uriah died, and Bathsheba become pregnant by someone, not her husband. She has now lost her husband, and there were other men in the army who also died as a result of this. And all of this all goes back to David, and David being in the center of David's story. It would be, I think, too simplistic, if we were to look at this whole story, and to say, where was the problem? Was it that he, was he sent Uriah to die? Was that the problem? Should he not have done that? But the rest of it was okay. No, no, no. Let's back up a little bit. Maybe it was um, <laughs> getting Uriah drunk. Maybe that was the, no. Maybe it was the sleeping with Uriah's wife. Maybe that was a problem. You think that was maybe a problem? Yeah. Or maybe it was the staying. If we try to pinpoint the single action and say, if, just don't do that thing, and if you don't do that thing, everything's fine. It's too simplistic. And I hope, as we've gone through this already, you've seen that there's something more going on behind the scenes. We said a few weeks ago, when um, talking about David and Goliath, we had the picture of all the arrows going one direction and the one arrow going another direction, and we said, this is what was really going on with David. David. And it wasn't just that everybody was going one way and he was going a different way. There a million different ways to go different than other people. What this was actually showing was that David was looking up when everybody else was looking down. Colossians 3, 2, I think it's right. It says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. That's why we see David in all those other scenarios we talked about earlier, getting it right when everybody else around him was giving bad advice and doing the wrong things and everybody else would have done the wrong thing. He has his mind set on things above, not on earthly things. The problem here which I think is uh, exemplified by David being on the roof and seeing Bathsheba bathing below, what does that mean, the direction of his eyes is? This is the first time we really see David looking down. And when David starts looking at earthly things and forgetting to look above, that's when everything goes wrong. And we see it really messing up his life and all kinds of lives all around him. Even even if he'd gotten away with it. Put that in quotes. (laughs) Even if none of the other people around ever knew what was going on, which we'll look at next week how this really comes out into the light. But even if nobody sees it, he's ruining his life. He's ruining the lives of those around him. And this, I think, is what we have to see as uh, the problem of sin. It's not just, well, I've got to avoid doing these things so God won't be mad at me. It's, I have to have my, I need him every hour, you know, that it's that constant dependence on him. He is the one who gives us life. He's the one who sustains our life. He is the one who has to fill us with who he is because apart from him, there is no life. And all the other things that we chase and all the ways that we try to decide right and wrong for ourselves, it's been (laughs) revealed to us by God saying it and then us seeing it confirmed in every human who's ever lived that to turn away from God brings nothing but destruction and death and brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. If we have that view of sin, we have that view uh, of what it's doing to us and everybody else, then when we see these political sex scandals or whatever else, rather than being Pharisees and saying, well, I would never do that, we can watch them like we read the story of David and say, don't do that. No, I hope that I don't find out that it's as bad as they're making it sound. I hope that turns out not to be true. I hope they didn't do that thing. I know how bad that is for them and for everyone around them. And because we see that this is a story of the heart and not just a story of the actions that follow the heart, I hope that if we're reading the story of David, we're not seeing it just as a story of David but also a reflection of our ourselves. Temptations come. Million different ways. Martin Luther said something along the lines of, you know, that uh, yes, the birds may fly over your head, but you shouldn't allow them to make a nest in your hair. There are temptations that come, but how we respond to the temptation depends on the direction of our heart. Depends on where it is that we're looking. And so, as we go from here, a few application points. One, like David said at you know, the very beginning when said David stayed home everybody else, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. do what you can to be where you're supposed to be and be doing what you're supposed to be doing, because that, in and of itself, will keep you from a lot of temptations. And then secondly, before the temptations come. Make sure your heart is right with God. Do what you can do to make sure that you're keeping that connection constant. Pray continually, as Paul says. And then three. We'll look at this a lot more next week. Repent early. We are bound to fall, to fail. But when we do, you see, if David had turned back early, how many more sins would not have happened? How many more lives would not have been ruined? Turn back early. What God wants for us is life, real life, life with him. And we are about to celebrate again. Communion. The links to which God went to show us It says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I hope you're not hearing this and saying, okay, I just need to be like David in the early days, not the later days. I need to get everything right, and then God will like me. No, he already likes you. And it's while you are doing the very things that show how far your heart is from him that he comes to you and he gives his life for you that you may be restored to life with him and life forever, real life at that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.